Hello, welcome to this week's episode of E2 Review. I'm Max Klinger, host of the show. This week we look at the state of free speech in the UK, why some parts of the left are trying to clamp down on it and why we're against that. We discuss Epstein, Corbyn, the Prince Andrew interview and a bunch of other issues as well. This is going to be a really quick introduction, so one final point before we get started. If you're listening to this as a podcast, we would really appreciate it if you could give us a good rating and a review if you liked it, because that really helps people find the show. And if you're watching this on YouTube, just hit the thumbs up button and click subscribe. That, yeah, helps you keep up to date with what we put out and lets other people find the video. That's all from me for now. Enjoy the show. Um... Yeah, the problem here might be that I haven't actually seen the video. You haven't you've seen the video. Me, you've just told me about it. And you started off by saying you've seen... <laughs> Why don't we play else? the video uh, here? Yeah, all right, we're going to play... Uh, Let's just start this again. There's a good video which was just put out and which I tweeted. You can check it out on my Twitter. I'm going to put the details of that Twitter in the show yeah. notes. Anyway, so we've there's a good video the, yeah. which Peter Hitchens put out in which he's making an interesting point, which I believe ages, and I think loads of people believe, which is we kind of theoretically have free speech, but in reality there are some things you just can't talk about without a large section, usually of the left, mm. but also of some sections of kind of liberal society just going crazy about the fact that you've even said it or the fact that you've invited that person on. So there's barely ever a time when some of these right-wing commentators speak when there's not just a massive outcry about the fact that they've even been allowed a platform to speak in the first place. And it's just that whole, there's a subtle shift in approach from the idea that, yeah, I don't agree with those people, but it's interesting to have the debate, hear what they're saying, and then maybe there'll be some validity to what they say, but in general I'll disagree, which I think is a valid outlook. And those ideas are actually disgusting. So it's the idea that they're not just something you disagree with but they're like kind of disgusting and evil things that should if possible not even really be allowed to be aired or discussed and there's just such a crucial distinction there and so that's what he's talking about he's saying there's a and that's what i mean by the tyranny of custom it's like yeah you've got the freedom to say those things but if in certain really influential so like media or literary or cultural circles and amongst large sections of kind of chattering class society mm. which we are obviously part of very much <laughs> but then those things are just it's just accepted that some of these ideas are disgusting rather than just something you disagree with mm. and dangerous <laughs> the, the left is often trying to position right-wing figures not just as people they disagree with but as extremists and that is dangerous because there's historically been terrible consequences when right-wing extremism actually has reared its ugly head but if you call everything which is right-wing extremist and you massively expand the definition of that, firstly, the accusation loses its power when you actually do need it because there are right-wing extremists. And secondly, people react to that. The silent majority, or they maybe aren't the majority, but a large number of people see those left-wing people labelling some of the views that they might have some sympathy with as extremist or disgusting and then rioting to try and stop people speaking to express those views and just think, what the hell is going on here? Like, how is that something which is acceptable? Because you don't generally see right-wing mobs rioting or smashing things up to stop the left-wing points being made. And so that's why 
I think people have a feeling that there's a restriction on what they can and can't say on certain issues, and it's usually the right-wing conservative issues that those restrictions exist around. To give just one example of that, of many, um, Mariam Namazi, she's a left-wing secular feminist from Iran who was giving a speech in Goldsmith University and she gave another one in Warwick University, I think, where the student union tried to ban her from giving a speech because she was going to give a talk to the secular society about why she doesn't believe in Islam and why she's really opposed to certain aspects of radical Islamic thought. And she was... First of all, there are attempts to no-platform her by the student unions who tried to stop her speaking. And then the LGBTQ society and the Islamic society and the feminist society all joined up and went crazy at her during her discussion, tried to silence her, were screaming at her. Like, there are big groups of people standing up screaming at her when she was trying to speak. She couldn't finish her speech. Really intimidating. Really intimidating. And the, the unions were on the side of the students who were trying to silence her. But what that is is someone coming from Iran, which is a theocratic country trying to speak out about why she personally is against religion and doesn't believe in theocratic rule. And she's getting silenced in some cases by some students, not all, who had sympathy with Islamist views, it's later transpired. But obviously not all of them, as in the LGBTQ society is hardly going to be Islamist, but it's the, it's the fact that in that situation, the sympathy of the students and the the students reacted by attempting to stop someone who was coming from a society where she's living under theocratic rule from speaking out against the theocratic rule and the ideology that she sees as underpinning it. Mm. They tried to silence that. And so that's something which mm. it's not even clear if there, it could be argued that the students are doing something extremely right wing. Cause if you're arguing that theocratic Islamist government is something which needs to be protected from criticism by a secular feminist, then you're really siding with one of the most patriarchal regimes yeah. in the world. Very illogical alignment between the LGBTQ society and the uh, Iranian theocratic regime. <laughs> regime. Yeah, exactly. It makes, it makes no sense. But that's the point. It's one of those things that happens if you don't... If you just get taught that your views are just absolutely morally right... So it's not an issue of, oh, I hold these views, but there could be other equally valid points of views that I just tend to disagree with. It's, I am right. There is, like, the other view is evil, and that's the shift in approach. But there are so many other examples of that, of speakers trying to speak at universities. Just look them up, and they'll be antifa mobs. So they'll claim to be anti-fascist, but they'll actually be acting in a way which is has parallels with fascistic behaviour. Obviously, they're not fascists, but has mm. parallels with it in that they're using threats of violence to stop people expressing views that they disagree with. So we could play a clip of that video. We could play, we'll play a bit of the video now. Yeah. Hopefully you can hear it. Everybody says that they like free speech, but actually they don't really. And quite often the expression, I really, really like free speech is then followed by a but. A but I don't actually like what you said, but I don't think he should have been allowed to say that, but I think that was wrong. Because we don't actually like to hear people disagreeing with us or making us sound silly, and we particularly dislike people expressing our own secret doubts on any subject, which is the thing which gets people more enraged than anything else. And, of course, in our schools, increasingly, children are taught not how to think, but what to think. And when they get to university, they're taught the same thing, only hotter and stronger. 
So here we have a society in which it's increasingly difficult for anybody actually to hold a dissenting opinion and to express it. If you do, you're in trouble. It won't be that the thought police will come calling, at least not quite yet. It won't be that you'll be flung into prison, not generally. Probably the police won't visit you, though the police do patrol Twitter quite vigorously. What will almost certainly happen is that if you step out of line and say something which isn't approved of or correct, you'll lose your job. And you'll be the victim also of a Twitter storm in which you'll be publicly shamed and you'll be destroyed as a person. So, in general, people are learning bit by bit that it's not safe to say quite a lot of things it would have been safe to say 20 years ago. And in 10 years' time, the number of things you're allowed to say will be even smaller. So I think I can say with some confidence, free speech is dying in this country. We don't have the First Amendment that the United States has, which defends it by law. It can only be defended in the hearts of the people. And if they don't care about it, how can it survive? Yeah, that is pretty good. I think he summarises that quite uh, effectively. <laughs> so what he's referring to there is the closing of the Overton window. The Overton window being the window of acceptable thought and discussion. The parameters of acceptable thought and discussion. So on some issues, it's like, for example, immigration. Maybe 30 years ago, if you'd said, I am in favour of mass immigration of say 350,000 people a year or how whatever the figure is at the moment or you know 100,000 people a year that would have been much higher than the numbers of people in general coming into the country and I would have probably been in favor of that back then but you would have been able to say in response to that oh no Mm. we're not so in favor of that amount of immigration because we think there are problems with it blah 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 Um, and I probably would have disagreed with that and I probably still do to some extent but the point is it wouldn't have been something that by discussing you'd have been instantly labelled far right like bringing up the issue of how many people come into the country so personally this so like my view on it would be in general I probably think that immigration is a good thing and I think that there's an aspect to criticising immigration which can have racist undertones but there are also people who legitimately have concerns about immigration not based on disliking immigrants but based on the fact that they think that there are some societal consequences of it which need to be more openly discussed given that the numbers of people coming to the country are very high historically speaking but it's not it's almost never discussed in polite society it's so there will be loads of people around the country who will vote on that basis but you barely ever see that reflected in how people will discuss that issue it's more something that if it's like, oh my God, it's disgusting. These people are obsessed with immigration. They're such disgusting racists. And in some cases, there will be racists, but I also think it's something that has become much harder to talk about, despite the fact that across the country, people's attitudes to it are obviously not in line with the windows of acceptable discussion. So it's just, it's a comp- so by saying that point, I'm not defending racists who are opposed to immigration on that basis. But I think it's an area, it's just one of many examples of something which has become harder to discuss without potentially facing a huge backlash or being treated as if you're really extreme and really kind of disgusting in your views. Another example of that would be, so it should be possible to discuss radical Islam, let's say, without instantly being labelled an extremist. For example, Majid Nawaz, who is himself Muslim, will criticise aspects of theocratic belief and will be instantly labelled racist. Mm -hmm. But that's not necessarily racist. Or I think the common term I've heard when discussing Majid Nawaz and other people like him is people calling him problematic. Mm. And I think that's quite interesting what Peter Hitchens just mentioned there, 
um, which is the fear people have of free speech when it's sometimes coming from um, hearing something said to you, which which just knocks at a little bit in your head, which sort of sort of has slightly agrees, but um, or like thinks it might be kind of interesting work, like something something in the back of your mind and reacting against that because you don't want to open that Pandora's box. People think that there's like they they don't want to hear anything which um, makes them question that kind of underlying. Uh, a sense of assurance that they've got the right world view. Mm. Um, they don't want to be rattled. Yeah. Um, and I think that's why people call people like Majid Nwaz problematic rather than saying sometimes... No, oh, people will call him... People yeah, call people him do call him people a People call him an extremist. I think when I, like, you know, I talk to a lot of very smart, lovely, um, kind of traditionally left-wing people who would not say, like, oh, no, I do, I do understand the nuances of the argument, but mm. he is problematic. Is mm. is the other thing you run up against in kind of this free speech, yeah, uh, discussion. Yeah, no, true. Um, so that was just a, an interesting little thing which happened this week was that video because that is something which we've been thinking about a lot and that's been really popular online. A lot of people are showing that. Mm. And we um, don't want to just talk about Prince Andrew videos. Mm. We'd rather talk about well, a Prince few Andrew. Other things. Yeah, let's talk about him. <laughs> yeah, that was a very, yeah, That's very, very, very strange. strange. I don't know who knows what's going on with that, but it's, it just seems crazy how many people are involved in that mm. Epstein thing. Epstein didn't kill himself. Yeah, <laughs> you joke, but as in, I think like even in the interview with Prince Andrew, Emily Maitlis said it's something like it's considered that he killed himself, but some people have raised doubts about that. And so I think it's like most people with any brains now are like, well, if you look into this, this is unbelievably weird. Mm. Is it irrational to believe that even thinking he might not have killed himself means you're a conspiracy theorist? Mm. There are loads of conspiracy. Th- I really hate conspiracy theorists. That's what's weird about this. I actually like in general they just seem so crazy, and like people who believe that way of thinking about stuff tend to mm. think very, very differently to me. It's also quite a simple solution a lot of the time. Conspiracy yeah. theorists. People are like, there's something going on wrong with the world. Yeah, and it um, always leads them back to the Jews. <laughs> But yeah, I think that uh, or Epstein, as Corbyn would say. Yeah, uh, that I haven't. I did see the. I did see the. So that was in the debate. I'm not saying. But in, anyway, in general, I'm really opposed to that conspiratorial way of thinking, which I think on the left and right, actually, a lot of people are guilty of. But in but on this one instance, it's not as clear. It's just not conspiratorial to want to see more investigation into how he actually died. I think, and it's very weird how so many of the media outlets which should be investigating this simply report it as completely clear-cut anyone who thinks he didn't kill himself is a conspiracy theorist when most people who look into it will be like well no this is just not the rational way to approach it there's actually an all right joe rogan clip where he's talking about that could put a link to this clip at the bottom although yeah some of it's joe rogan stuff's a bit silly um yeah what we talking about oh yeah jeremy corbyn um when he said epstein jeremy corbyn <laughs> is that how what people sing no, that's not. <laughs> what that? do people sing when they do your? Oh, I don't know. Oh, sing one Jeremy. <laughs> yeah. Jeremy. Anyway, the cult of Jeremy Corbyn. Well, is it? No, oh, I don't know. It's hard to know. I think he's get. I really grime, disagree with him on grime, loads of stuff, but I also think he's Corbyn. getting really negative press. Um, yeah, grime that sort of stuff. Exactly. The Corbyn thing's weird though because. I really agree with a lot of the criticisms leveled against him, but I also think that. 
for the first time in ages, this is an example of a left-wing figure who's kind of experiencing the same level of negative press that right-wing figures often get. Yeah. To the extent that it's actually quite hard to... It, it makes you think that he's getting sometimes kind of overly... It's, it's, some of the criticism gets a bit hysterical of what he's doing. Mm. Even though I actually agree with most of the criticisms. So things like he hung out with Hamas and called them his friends. That is just absolutely crazy. Yeah. But, and I really strongly think that. But then again, it's like he hung out with Hamas and called them his friends. But on something like wanting to nationalise the railways or nationalise the post office, I probably think that's a pretty bad idea. But people calling him like an extreme communist and stuff for that does seem a bit hysterical. Because it's like, well, he's like an old school, middle of the road socialist, really. He's not a communist. On the other hand, there are literally videos of John McDonald standing in front of massive posters of Mao and Stalin, who are responsible for literally tens of millions of deaths mm. and just not bang. Now, like he's, give, he's willingly standing in front of huge posters of those mass murdering tyrants and speaking without criticising them. So to that extent, I think it is valid to call someone like that. I mean, I think the criticisms levelled at him for that are valid. But yeah, it's just very, very confusing. I really can't make up my mind. My instinct is that people are acting quite hysterically about Corbyn. But then at the same time, a lot of the criticisms levelled against him, like hanging out with Hamas, being too sympathetic towards radical Islamists whose views are deeply anti-Jewish and often really bigoted or actually always unbelievably bigoted towards people like gays and Jews um, is that is something to be concerned about and I really really oppose that and the same with speaking in front of massive posters of Malzahn but I still but then on other issues like his for, like his like nationalising stuff I was like yeah I don't really agree with that but calling it yeah. completely beyond the pale to me seems a bit crazy yeah I think that's what I actually um did sort of notice with the way that Boris Johnson interacts with those sort of policies and with Corbyn is that he didn't he doesn't actually go so much for the like Corbyn's trying to turn this into a communist um, hellhole. Mm. He was just like, well, the the main point is that you don't know what side you're going to campaign on in the next referendum. Yeah, that is, called, r- which yeah. is actually the most logical, important <laughs> point. And I quite respect Boris Johnson for like just trying to plough ahead with like making that clear. Mm. Which actually isn't going to help him that much. So he to actually play the field properly, he probably needs to go down the um, shock jockey. Mm. Uh, Maybe I, don't know. I think Corbyn's position on Brexit, I think, is actually more respectable than the other people in his party. Because yeah. Corbyn himself, obviously, is sort of vaguely pro and vaguely anti-EU. I reckon he's been kind of anti-EU the mm. whole of his life. But now he probably just wishes the whole thing would go away. And he can't really bring himself to say he's mm. kind of vaguely in favour of leaving, but actually doesn't really know. Which I think is actually kind of a fair enough position. But the other people in his party, are like Emily Thornbury, the way in which she discusses Labour's position is so, like, indefensibly deliberately misleading and unclear always and it's mm. so patronising so people will ask are you in favour of like you promised to deliver on the result of the referendum in your manifesto you haven't done that you're against no deal but you're also against the deal you're essentially refusing to implement the result of a vote that you don't agree with how can you justify this and she'll just respond by really smugly saying this is um, people didn't vote for a Brexit 
that doesn't protect jobs in the economy. But that is completely Orwellian language. Because yeah. Let people, me make myself perfectly clear. Yeah, they always thought I was enemy <laughs> and then they never make it clear, and it's deliberately misleading. People didn't vote for Brexit on the basis of jobs or the economy or what they voted on a very specific issue. And the way she knows that. And they run on the basis, their last manifest that they ran on the basis that they they agreed with that and would implement it. And they just openly did the opposite, essentially. Whilst claiming not to be doing the opposite. So I think actually is there's people like that which I find more irritating than Corbyn, actually, as a guy. Which is weird because most of the ire is directed towards him as a guy rather than his cronies. Mm. Uh, this has been a bit of a ramble, though. So we, should we oh, just, I think we, we covered some fairly interesting topics, though. Yeah, maybe. The listeners will be the judge. Oh, I've not got on. Anyway, well, all right. Um, thanks for listening to this episode. Of the evening. Ooh, that's why I didn't kill it. Oh, my God. Uh, <laughs>